Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And there it is, folks, a whammy of a verse. We've already quoted this verse in advance a few times. What does Jesus mean when he says the law and the prophets? He's talking about the Old Testament. The law is the first five books of Moses and some records following that. And the prophets are everything else. Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, on down the list. People were making the assumption back then, just as unfortunately a lot of Christians today make this same assumption, and it's wrong. They were making the assumption back then that God, through Jesus Christ, was doing away with his old ways, the old laws, the old prophets, that God had somehow realized that he was being too harsh. And that's why he sent Jesus, to bring about a new system that's more tolerant and more forgiving. Jesus himself tells you right here, that's not true. The Old Testament is still in force today. There's two stages of its fulfillment. Stage one, Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. The prophets prophesied of both his first and second coming, folks. And the law demanded a blood sacrifice to pay for the penalty of sin. The law demanded a lot of things, in which the more you get into it, you'll find that particular archaic law being fulfilled at the cross. Stage two of its fulfillment, Jesus says, Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In the Hebrew alphabet, a jot and a tittle was equivalent to our crossing of a T or dotting of an I. Jesus is saying not one T-cross or I-dot will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You go back and study Leviticus, you'll find all kinds of weird stuff that we today have no idea what it's talking about. But Israel did. They had to practice it for thousands of years. Then Jesus comes along and fulfills it in an even bigger way. All of Jesus' titles spoken of in the New Testament that we're familiar with those titles are originally found in the Old Testament law. He is the Lamb of God. He's our High Priest. He's our Avenger of Blood. He's our City of Refuge. He's our Kinsman Redeemer. All of those titles won't make any sense to you unless you understand the Old Testament law. And he's not finished, folks. There's a second coming that hasn't happened yet. There's a title deed to the land. All of that's in the Old Testament. Jesus purchased it at the cross. He'll reclaim what he purchased at his second coming. Today we tend to think of ourselves as living under a New Testament system and that the Old Testament is no longer relevant. That's not true. If you're in Jesus Christ, the law is being kept right now. It's not being done away with or cast aside. You and I can't possibly keep the law, so Jesus kept it for us all the days of his life. And then he paid the penalty for breaking the law, even though he kept it. The Old Testament law required that a sacrifice had to be spotless and without blemish. Jesus was clean. But he volunteered to be two things. One, a spotless sacrifice without blemish. And two, a member of the human race. To represent the human race to God the Father. And because he's a human being, because he's our kin, he's called our kinsman redeemer. All that can be found in the Old Testament, written out in detail. And that's just the law. What about the prophets? 
Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all of the other prophets are full of prophecies that deal with both Jesus' first and second comings. Jesus has only come once, folks. He's got a second trip before all of those prophecies can be fulfilled. Old Testament. I'm not even bringing up the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. And that's just barely scratching the surface. Jesus is the keeper of the law. It's through him that we have our righteousness. Without him, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And Jesus is about to drive that point home with the rest of this chapter. If you don't know the context of the rest of this chapter, boy, is it scary. This is Jesus proclaiming to his followers what God views as acceptable conduct. Anything less than what is described here is totally unacceptable. There's no leeway, no get-out-of-jail-free card. This is how it's supposed to be, period. But as we go through the rest of this chapter, it will increasingly become obvious that no man in all of earth history has ever even come close to meeting the requirements laid out in the rest of this chapter. No man except for one. Our spotless sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And I think that's the real point behind what Jesus says in the rest of this chapter. This is God himself raising the bar. And it's raised so high that only through Jesus Christ can it be met. And if you don't believe me, peek ahead to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That almost sounds like blasphemy, doesn't it? Didn't Satan get in trouble for thinking he could do this? Didn't he say, I will be like the Most High? That's when God found pride in his heart and cast him out of heaven and the whole war between God and Satan got started. But here Jesus is telling you, be perfect just like God. Is he serious? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that by keeping the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, not only in your mind, but in your heart, all the days of your life, you will be perfect, just like God. That's what the Old Testament law lays out. And that's how to be perfect. As followers of Christ, we have the help of the Holy Spirit to perform it out. That perfection is the goal. In the rest of these verses, Jesus is going to amplify it. It is what God demands for acceptable behavior and conduct. Because God himself is perfect and cannot tolerate imperfection. If he could, then he himself would no longer be perfect. And we've gotten all of this before. Only perfection can enter heaven. It's got an awesome firewall around it. Imperfection cannot get through. So be perfect just like God. That's what Jesus said. Is he serious? I said yes and no. Here's the no part. Jesus already knows that we can't. That's why he came to perform that perfection on our behalf. That's why right before he goes into all of this on what it means to be perfect, he starts it off with the statement, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Let's keep going. Verse 19. It says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, this is getting ridiculous. The Pharisees were professional law keepers. The rigid, hardcore legalists. Jesus is saying, that's nothing. You've got to be even more righteous than them. How in the world can you be more righteous than the professional, rigid, legalist, hardcore law keepers? How? 
I mean, folks, they took the Ten Commandments and turned them into a thousand. The Pharisees may have been wrong for doing that, but these Pharisees actually did follow their own rules. They were legalists, but they followed their own legalism. They were so obsessed with keeping the law that they not only kept the law to the best of their ability, they came up with dozens of all of these other unnecessary rules and regulations for each law to prevent even coming close to breaking the law, just in case. Jesus is saying, you've got to go further than that. You have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. How in the world would you even define what it means to be more righteous than the Pharisees? Let's keep reading. Jesus explains, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever kills shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoa! Some of you might think, well, when I'm angry, it's usually for a good reason. Jesus said angry without a cause, so I'm good. Actually, that phrase without a cause isn't in the original Greek. Some scholars disagree, but they're in the minority. You look at the original language, Jesus didn't put that comfortable little buffer in there. Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And that phrase, shall be in danger of the judgment, in the original language is even tougher. It says, shall be liable and unable to escape judgment. And then the rest of this verse, plus four verses on, is under the category of anger. It's different examples of anger and what Jesus says you should do about it. But all of this, Jesus classifies it under the commandment against murder. This is what Jesus means by exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is going beyond the external action of law-breaking and getting into emotions. How many of you think you can control your emotions 100% of the time? Now, from this point right here in the sermon, right here, that's chapter 5, verse 21. From here, all the way to the end of the chapter, is Jesus being dead serious on the one hand, while at the same time being sarcastic. You have to understand that Jesus is addressing those who are already saved. They are not in danger of the judgment. What the rest of this chapter is, is Jesus explaining the law to an extent that even the Pharisees didn't comprehend. Humanity is a fallen and imperfect race. That imperfection cannot enter heaven, period. Only perfect righteousness can enter heaven. And that righteousness isn't external only. It's internal. And the Pharisees didn't get that. That's why he started this off by saying, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you won't make it. So you've got some work to do. You have a choice. You can either accomplish that righteousness yourself, or you can accept Jesus' righteousness as a substitute for yours. Paul's letters talk about that. They talk about being clothed in his righteousness. Not yours, his let his righteousness represent you, or you can attempt to achieve righteousness on your own. God does give us that choice. It's called free will. But to anyone who thinks they can accomplish this on their own, and the Pharisees were among that group, to anyone who wants to accomplish the necessary righteousness on their own to get into heaven, Jesus lays out how to achieve it right here in the rest of this chapter. So if you're interested in accomplishing your own righteousness, pay attention and take notes. Because if you've screwed up in any way, from this verse to the end of the chapter, it's already too late for you. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whoever kills shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, 
that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that's an old word for idiot. Whoever says to his brother, you idiot, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Oh boy, am I in trouble. I just retired a political talk show where I spent three years calling our politicians idiots. But anyway, verse 23. There is when you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First make peace with your brother, and then come back and present your gift. That's getting into the whole Jewish temple worship system they had back then. Verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest at any time your adversary delivers you to the judge, and the judge delivers you to the officer, and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not be released until you have paid the last fraction of a penny. He's not saying reach across the aisle and always agree with your enemies. He's saying that while you're in his way. You know, when I read this, it's as though you're on a sidewalk and he's standing right in front of you. Just get him out of the way, you know. What's the point of being right if you wind up in prison? That's the feel of this verse. All of this under the category of murder in God's eyes. Murder of the heart. And notice Jesus keeps saying, I say to you, I say to you, he says. He quotes what's commonly thought. some cases it's the old Mosaic law. But then he says, but I say to you. He's putting himself up on a level higher than Moses, folks. He's saying he's the lawgiver and he's the interpreter of that law. I'm telling you what it means. Okay, that's murder. Clearly, we're all guilty of murder in God's eyes. Now, here comes another commandment we probably don't think we're guilty of. At least, I hope not. And that's adultery. Verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guilty as charged, folks. And I remember back in high school, we had a Sunday school teacher that tried to make us feel better about this and told us, well, this is talking about constant, continual lust. If you look at her and keep looking at her. Well, that sounds nice, but that's not what Jesus said, is it? God is outside time. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Well, if that's true, then a second is as a thousand seconds, and a thousand seconds is as a second. What does the amount of time spent in that lust have to do with anything? And there's something else here that blew my mind when I read this. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn this as fornication of the heart. He goes all the way and calls it adultery. We Christians love to make ourselves feel better with various definitions of different sins that are listed in the Bible. You know, sex outside of marriage is wrong because it's fornication, but it's not adultery. It's only adultery if you're married and the person you're having sex with isn't your spouse. Or the person you're with is married and you're not their spouse. That's adultery. But if we're both unmarried, then it's just fornication. That's a sin too, but at least it's not adultery. Well, tell that to Jesus, because here in this verse, he said, whoever... He didn't say married, but whoever looks at a woman, didn't say married woman, but a woman, and lusts after her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why would Jesus call it adultery? Because sex is something that is only meant to be shared between a man and his wife. If you're not her husband, or if she isn't your wife, then it's adultery. That blew me away when I first realized this. And now things are even tougher. You're committing adultery in your heart. If you even look at a woman with lust, I'm not married and she isn't my wife, so I've committed adultery in the heart. Let's keep reading. 
You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it away. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. You have got to be kidding! Folks! He can't possibly be serious, can he? I guess it depends on who's listening. If you're saved and you're wearing his righteousness, then your whole body is in no danger of being thrown into hell. But if you're not saved... And if you have no intentions of being saved, but you still want to escape hell, then this is how. Don't get angry. Don't lust after anyone ever unless you're married and it's your spouse that you're lusting after. And if you don't think you can manage that 100% of the time, then just to be saved, pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands. Then maybe you might make it. That's what Jesus is saying. And people say Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. It gets worse. Verse 31. It has been said, whoever puts away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say to you, that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, he causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries her commits adultery. Now this verse, folks, makes a lot of people nervous. But don't forget the context of this. Just one verse prior, Jesus said, to prevent yourself from sinning, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. I would think that verse would make you more nervous than this one. But what Jesus is describing here in this series of verses is behavior that is absolute in its perfection. This is totally flawless, perfect behavior of the heart, mind, and body. This isn't like the book of Proverbs where it compares and contrasts the differences between foolish behavior and wise behavior. That's not what this is. This is Jesus laying out what it means to be perfect. He's amplifying what he meant when he said, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we'll get into the whole business of marriage and divorce when Jesus gets into a conversation about this later on in Matthew. So there's really no point in spending too much time on that here because that's not what this verse is really all about. Keep it in context. People have taken this verse out of context to put divorced women under a guilt trip. You know, it's funny, nobody ever takes the prior verse out of context to make people feel guilty for not cutting off their hands. But they'll take this one. I've actually known women who were afraid to remarry after their husband left them because of this verse. Even after the husband who left them has married somebody else. They say, in God's eyes, I'm still married to him. So I can't remarry. It would be adultery in God's eyes. Unfortunately, folks... Technically, she's right. But it's missing the point. In that verse, the woman hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus is addressing the men who divorce her. And he's saying, if you throw her away, except for the cause of fornication, in other words, if she's sleeping around, then she's committing adultery already anyway. But if she's not committing adultery, and you divorce her, then you cause her to commit adultery, and you cause the man she marries to commit adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not talking to women who've been divorced and saying, you better not marry again, because if you do, you'll be committing adultery. He's telling the men, when you divorce your wives, you cause them to commit adultery. It's your fault. If you want to shift blame, blame it on the man. Jesus did. He's telling them, you cause them to commit adultery. 
The point of this verse isn't to keep a divorced woman single. It's to keep the man from divorcing her to begin with. It's amazing to me the twisting and the turning that we do to make ourselves feel righteous in God's eyes. You can go to one of two extremes. You can twist and turn yourself out of guilt and fear and put yourself in a self-made prison attempting to perform on your own righteousness that is pleasing in God's sight, which you can't possibly do. Or you can twist and turn the scriptures to make them say things that they don't say to make yourself feel righteous in God's eyes. You know, we hear that phrase a lot, in God's eyes. This is the way so-and-so really is in God's eyes. Be careful when you start talking about the way things are in God's eyes, because when you do, you are talking about the vision of one who is totally flawless in perfection and righteousness and one who sees everything. The deepest thoughts of your heart, every little intricate detail. Be very careful when you start saying, well, in God's eyes, be careful. If you've been happily married with a Christian for 50 years, but you had a one-night stand with somebody else before then, then in God's eyes, you were married to that one-night stand, and you spent the last 50 years in sin. If you waited and didn't lose your virginity until you were married, you still lose. Because before you were married, at some point in time, you must have lusted after somebody somewhere at some time. And when you did, you had sex with them in your heart, in God's eyes. Don't throw around that phrase, in God's eyes, too often, or you'll get burned. Don't use it as an excuse to get away with something that the Bible clearly teaches against. And on the other hand, don't use it to imprison yourself when Jesus died on the cross to free you from that prison. You're to put on His righteousness, not yours. Josh, are you saying that it's okay to sin because of the cross? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's never okay to sin. What I'm saying is that sinning is inevitable. You don't think it's inevitable when you read the Ten Commandments, but then here comes Jesus to amplify those Ten Commandments, and it's a shocking discovery to realize that every man, woman, and child that has ever walked the earth has broken all ten of those laws. If you thought you had never committed murder, Jesus says, yes, you have. If you've ever been angry at your brother, you committed murder in your heart. If you thought you had never committed adultery, Jesus says, yes, you have. If you've ever had lust for anyone in your heart. Every man, woman, and child that has ever walked the earth has broken all ten of those laws. The book of Romans gets into all of that. No one is righteous, it says. But there is one exception. There is one man who walked the earth who did perform this level of absolute perfect righteousness. And that's the man who's giving this sermon. Folks, up until now, Jesus has been promoting grace to Nicodemus, the woman at the well. Example after example, Jesus doesn't talk about behavior. He talks about faith. He talks about spiritual rebirth and being saved by faith. And he had been promoting it so well that people thought Jesus was trying to destroy the Old Testament law. And that's what started this whole string of verses here, folks. Jesus says, think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He's saying, I will fulfill it. Me. I am to fulfill the letter of the law. Why? Because unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's why. And that's what verse 20 all the way down to the end of the chapter is about, folks. What it really means to follow the law. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely. 
but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, do not bind yourselves by an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Ooh. And do not swear by your own head, for you are not able to make a single hair white or black. Let your yes simply be yes, and let your no simply be no. Anything more than that comes from evil. I guess if you were to spend your entire life doing this, folks, then people wouldn't need an oath from you, because you never lie. If people are constantly asking you, do you swear, do you swear, Josh? And that's not a very good compliment to your word. But on the other hand, we do live in a dishonest world. It doesn't matter how honest you are. People who don't know you don't know that they can trust you, so you have to make an oath, especially in a court of law. I should have researched before doing this if anyone has ever told a judge that they would tell the truth, but they wouldn't swear to tell the truth because of this verse. But anyway, verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil man who injures you, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek... Turn to him the other also. Folks, this is radical stuff. But before we're finished with the whole gospel account, you'll notice that that is exactly what Jesus did. To Judas who betrayed him, the soldiers who arrested him, and even to the ones who put the nails in his hands. And folks, I have to be honest, this is one of those verses I just really wish wasn't here. Because I can't possibly see myself ever obeying this verse. Ever. And yet, Jesus doesn't really give me a choice. I still have my free will, and of course all of my sins are paid for on the cross, but to not do what Jesus says here is a sin. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. Now some have taken this verse and actually broadened it to an extent that's not biblical. I mean, left alone the way it is. It's, I mean, it's radical enough. Somebody hits you, offer them your other cheek. But what if it isn't your cheek that's in danger of being hit, but somebody else's? Do you offer up their cheek? No. It's not your cheek to offer up. It's theirs. I bring this up because some people believe war against a nation that's attacked you is against this verse. No, it's not. Protecting others who can't defend themselves is a noble act. And we'll find Jesus saying something to that effect here before long. This isn't talking about not going to war or not getting into a fight to defend someone else who's defenseless. If it was, then Jesus would be disobeying it himself when he comes back in the future to defend Israel. A lot of blood going to be shed in those days by Jesus himself. He didn't lift a finger during his first visit to defend his own flesh. But in the second coming, he certainly will to defend Israel. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil man who injures you. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak also. The Amplified brings out in the Greek, instead of your coat, it was your tunic, which was the equivalent to your undershirt. He's saying if anyone wants to sue and take the underwear off of you, let him have your coat also. And if anyone compels you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who asks of you. And from him who would borrow from you, don't turn away. See, folks, the idea behind all of this is who's really in control of your life? If you're a follower of Christ, then he's in control. Let him worry about your cheek. 
Let him worry about your cloak. If you're a follower of Christ, then everything you have was his to give you, and it's his to take away. That's the idea behind all of this. Your life is in his hands. So all of your needs are his problems, not yours. And you're to react to every circumstance with his love. That's the idea. Something else, when you get into the regular habit of looking at life that way, looking at your circumstances that way, and looking at everything that way, it completely changes who you are. Blessings that you didn't even notice before become visible. Freedoms that you've always had that you didn't notice before are suddenly made visible. Suddenly they're right there in front of you. Problems are put in a perspective that you never had before. And with all of this comes a feeling of invincibility that's indescribable. The awareness of God's personal and continuing care is brought close. You can feel his presence. You can feel him around you. It completely changes everything. The more we try to control things, the more we realize that we can't control it, and the more out of control it gets, and that's where all the chaos comes from. But the more we leave it up to him, the more peace, and that's the whole idea. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. You know, there have been occasions while in prayer, a few names have popped in my head, names of people who were always a problem, and occasionally I might have a moment where I'm looking at them with God's eyes, not my own, and I feel sorry for them, and I begin to pray for them. This doesn't happen too often, folks, I'll admit that, but it has happened, and what motivates it is God's love moving through you. It's not your love, it's His love, it's God's love moving through your own heart. Suddenly, they have no power over you. All of the wrongs that they've ever done seem so insignificant. It's in those moments that it becomes easy to obey this verse. But I'll admit, this isn't a consistent habit of mine, as it should be. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, when I read this, it reminds me of another phrase that's mentioned several times throughout the scripture, Hebrews chapter 10, Romans 12, and so many other places where it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I actually got to see that verse in action many years ago. Someone close to me had her home broken into by her ex-husband. He went into the dining room and broke several dishes on the floor. Not only did he destroy several dishes that were antiques, but he damaged the floor where he hit it so hard with all the dishes. He had done stuff like this before. This wasn't new. So I counseled her to call the police and press charges. They'd been divorced for almost a decade. He broke into her home. That's a crime. And he caused malicious damage. That's a crime. Call the police and press charges. This has got to stop. So she did. An arrest was made. He was bailed out. And he hired a lawyer who contacted hers and offered a deal. If she would drop the charges... He would financially compensate her for the damaged floor and the dishes. So she talked with me about it, and I told her, no, you don't want to do that. This isn't about the money. This is about him breaking into your home and destroying your property whenever he feels like it. He's done this kind of stuff before. This has got to stop. So then she thought about that, and then she prayed about it. And then she came back to me, and she said that she was going to go ahead and accept the deal and drop the charges. Well, I went ballistic. So I was like, you've got to be kidding but she said she prayed about it and remembered that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That accepting this deal wasn't giving in like I said it was. She would be recompensated for the damage that was done. The floor would be fixed and the dishes would be appraised and paid for. That's justice. If he's willing to do that, what would be the point of not dropping the charges? 
And I said, well, to keep him from doing this again, to make him see that he can't get away with this, that he can't just do whatever he wants and come over here to your house and break in like it's his. That's a crime. He needs to pay for that crime. This isn't just about the floor and the dishes. It's about the act itself. You might get the dishes and the floor paid for, but that doesn't pay for the act itself, the fact that it happened. But she said, Josh, I've already forgiven him for all of that. That's in God's hands now. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm not interested in getting revenge. If he's willing to pay for the dishes that he broke and the floor that he damaged, that's eye for an eye. That's fair. I didn't let him get away with it. I called the cops. He was arrested. And now he's paying for it. What you're wanting, Josh, is revenge. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I want because that's the way it has to be. That's the way he is. That's what it's going to take to get through his dense skull that he can't do stuff like this. But she said, Josh, I prayed long and hard about this. The deal is a fair deal. He'll pay for the floor he damaged. He'll pay for the dishes that he broke, and that's enough. Everything else is in God's hands. I prayed about it, Josh. I did. And I kept hearing that verse in my head over and over. It said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Well, how do you argue with that, folks? I mean, I tried. But how do you really argue with that? I went home mad because I didn't like where she went with this. I didn't really believe that this was the result of long, hard prayer. I believed that she was just cowering down to him like she had done before. So when I got home, I did need some praying because I was really concerned for her safety and I was greatly angered by what had happened. And I told God, I said, Lord, you and I know what her ex-husband is capable of. And here we are, we finally have him in a situation where he will finally pay for his actions. This deal to pay for the dishes and the floor, that's typical power trip stuff. He'll agree to pay for all that if she drops the charges. Please, he'll pay for it anyway because he's committed a crime. He needs to be nailed to the wall. And you know that, Lord, and I know that. So I don't think you told her to drop the charges like she says. I think she's just saying that because that's what she wants to do. But if you did tell her to drop the charges then, and then all of a sudden the words popped into my mind, you stay out of it. This is between me and her. If I told her to drop the charges, then you have nothing to say about it. And then, of course, I straightened up. Well, yeah, God, if, if you really did tell her to drop the charges, then, yeah, you're right. It's none of my business. So I straightened right up. It's funny how God will throw a brick in your head once in a while. Anyway, she did. She dropped the charges, and then he made arrangements to pay for the dishes and the damage to the floor, which he did. But here's what we didn't know. What we didn't know was that while all of this was going on, the district attorney was watching all of this from behind the scenes. He examined the police reports. He was reading all of the testimonies, looked at the pictures. He kept up with what was going on back and forth. And once the charges had been dropped... The district attorney took over, filed his own charges against him, and cleaned his clock. He lost everything. So if you really want to get back at somebody, folks, I mean really want to get back at them, forgive them and see what God does. You may never see what God does. We were fortunate to see it, and I think that might have been God's way of showing me how important it is to do exactly, precisely what God says when he says it and lean not on your own understanding. That was 10 or 15 years ago, and uh, he hasn't been a problem since. Neat little story, but even her willingness to forgive still pales in comparison to what Jesus is talking about here. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you to show that you are the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he makes the rain fall upon the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward can you have? Don't even the publicans do the same? 
the publicans, folks, were the reviled, sinful, thieving tax collectors. And it's kind of neat that Matthew would record this, him being a former publican. But anyway, let's continue. Jesus says, And if you greet and salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans do the same? Now, folks, in this last verse here, um, this isn't a too big a deal, but I have noticed while cross-referencing this last verse with all of the other modern translations, for some reason, I can't figure out what it is, but instead of saying publicans, they either say Gentile, pagan, or heathen. I haven't been able to figure out why they do that, because in the original Greek, both times, in both verse 47 and 48, Jesus used the tax collector's official title as a derogatory example. Don't get me wrong, the newer translations aren't really changing the point of the verse. I just can't figure out why they're taking liberties here. I don't have a problem with them changing words to help communicate the original, but don't do it if you don't have to. I guess they did it because Jesus already used the word publicans once in verse 47. And since he did that, they felt he was being too repetitive by using it again in verse 48. So they took the liberty to change it to Gentile or pagan or heathen because he does use that elsewhere. I guess that's where they get their permission to do this. But anyway, the point is, if you only love those who love you, and if you're only kind to those who are kind to you back, then how are you any different from anybody else? Even the thieving scoundrels who were the tax collectors of that time loved those who loved them back. And then Jesus finishes this segment of his sermon off with this killer verse. Verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, folks, how many of you really believe that Jesus really thinks that any of us are capable of being perfect, just as the Father in heaven is perfect? You know, I can imagine, among the people who were there listening, a lot of them must have been taking notes. And as Jesus goes down the list, they're writing down every single word, thinking to themselves, Okay, this is going to be tough, but I can do this. It won't be easy, but I think I can do this. And then as Jesus gets further and further and further into this sermon, some of these people's hands start to sweat while they're writing this down. And then when Jesus says that anger is murder of the heart, you hear about ten pencils hit the floor. The rest keep writing. Then Jesus says lust is adultery of the heart. Then you hear about twenty other pencils hit the floor. And this keeps happening over and over again until finally you get down here towards the end. There's maybe 10 or 20 people left writing all of this down. 10 or 20 noble, righteous human beings who have a heart bent towards pleasing God and being as righteous as they possibly can. And then Jesus says, love your enemies. I mean, that's radical. And then all but two people drop their pencils at that point. Matthew being one because we have this recorded. There may have been one person convoluted enough into thinking that he could actually accomplish and obey everything Jesus just said, thinking, well, this is going to be really, really tough. I mean, my whole life is going to have to change. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but if I work hard at this enough and keep this list pasted to my bedroom door and look at it every day, I think I might be able to do this. And then Jesus says, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then finally, Matthew's the only one left writing. Jesus said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I, not we, not us, I have come to fulfill the law. For truly I tell you, 
till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Why? Because unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's why. And I think that's where we're going to leave it for this week, folks. Give you some time to sweat it out. Don't sweat too much, though. If you're really feeling guilty and scared right about now, read the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, and you'll get a good night's sleep. It's only around five pages long, and it settles this whole issue of salvation by faith alone and not by works, deeds, or actions.